Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest this week is Catherine Ingram. Catherine is an international Dharma teacher with communities in the US, Europe, and Australia. Since 1992, she has led Dharma Dialogues, which are public events that focus on directing awareness toward greater well-being in an ethical and happy life. Catherine also leads numerous silent retreats each year in conjunction with Dharma Dialogues. She is president of Living Dharma, an educational nonprofit organization founded in 1995. And her bio goes on. She's done all sorts of interesting things, but we'll talk about that during the interview itself. So no point in my just reading it. So uh, welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Rick. Yeah. You know, when I kind of like uh, read some of your stuff and listened to some of your other interviews, I, I just had the feeling to say, congratulations on a, wi a life well lived. That, <laughs> but it makes it sound like it's over, which it's not. So, uh, you know. Getting closer, though. <laughs> so keep on, keep on trucking, and uh, the best is yet to come. <laughs> yeah, so you have an interesting story. Some teachers and some people I interview don't like to tell their story because they sort of say it emphasizes the personal too much, but I don't think you have a problem with that. And um, so in the course of our conversation, it would be interesting to cover you know, your personal history, which I think is quite colorful and uh, quite an adventure uh, in many ways. And also, of course, in doing that, we'll be weaving in all kinds of philosophical, spiritual topics and points. Um, so where would you like to start? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I have a hard time picking any particular point, you know. Um, well, you said you had a hard childhood. Uh, maybe that's a place to start. Uh, mine wasn't uh, exactly a bed of roses either, but um, how, how was it hard? My parents, bless their hearts, were young, and um, they really weren't up for the job, actually, how to say it any other way. And I, at this point in my life, I have nothing but love and forgiveness uh, see clearly that they did the best they could, um, all of those things. But, you know, li living through it was very, very hard as a child. And um, so that was, I mean, from a very young age, I was asking questions about justice, about fairness, about is there meaning, is there purpose, you know, I, I, began, I became very attuned to suffering, you know, wherever I saw it, even as a young person, and that became a huge theme in my life, trying to make sense of my world, which I experienced as unjust and as abusive. So that led me on a spiritual search from a quite young age, like from 12, I'd say. This hops us right into a, a kind of a metaphysical consideration, but looking back on it, do you feel that there is some, well, I could say divine orchestration, and not only in your life, but in people's lives in general, which, you know, makes such childhoods and experiences not merely coincidental and, and meaningless in, the, in their suffering, but it's actually a, a kind of a divine goad to get us onto something deeper. I don't see it that way, no, no. Mainly I see it as if that is circumstantially the case for you, then you're the, you're the one who's going to have to make meaning of it. Um, and some are able to do that by some kind of, you know, fate or luck or whatever, and others not. I feel fortunate, really just fortunate, lucky, 
that I was able, first of all, that I lived in the time that I lived in when one could, one had access to amazing teachings around the world. You weren't just stuck in the religion you were born in and trying to make sense of that, which never appealed to me. I was born into kind of a Christian household, Christian one side, Catholic the other, neither of which spoke to me. Um, I mean, really, from the time I remember being in Sunday school and just hating it. Me know? too. It like ruined my Sundays. <laughs> exactly. I feel kind of like dopey and bummed out the rest of the day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would look forward to the snacks there after class. But anyway, um, as I said, I was on this on this search, and fortunately, grew up in a time when there was tremendous freedom to to find those kinds of things, that kind of information, and to travel and go to the places in Asia where I was inclined to study and live, live there and find the great teachers. And so all of the things I was doing in those early years, Rick, you know, becoming a journalist and uh, setting up meditation retreats and running them and, and so on, um, it was all in the service of being around those wis- wisdom holders that existed on earth. And, um, and that was my education. I didn't go to college. I just threw myself into uh, Dharma study, you could say. And at the same time, I came of age in a very free time um, for a woman. I came of age in the 60s, you could say. You know, that was a, a really hot, fabulous time. To I don't know how old you are, but... I'm almost 64. Oh, my goodness, you look much younger. So we're about the same age, and so you know very well what I'm talking about, you know, just the music and the freedom and the hope and the travel, and somehow or other we could live on like $100 a month. You know, I mean, I have friends who were living in, you know, Victorians in San Francisco for just nothing, you know, and it was a different time. Hard to even explain to anyone how we did it you know i i can't you can't even remember you know part so of the, me is still there i was just listening to jimmy <laughs> jimmy hendrix yesterday i was just thinking about jimmy hendrix yesterday that's amazing he was great he was great amazing <laughs> yeah just thinking about him you know it was all of those kinds of freedom and the freedom to to study whatever you wanted to study so i feel very lucky in that regard because I was going crazy. <laughs> I was really miserable. And I felt this world was far too coarse and cruel for my um, sensitive, <laughs> you know, nervous system. And finding the Dharma, you know, I say that very broadly, um, not that it's something in particular, but that it's a perspective and a kind of enhancement of your own experience of yourself finding that saved me yeah just it just did i think i heard you say that reading be here now was your first introduction to it yeah yeah reading reading ram Dass's be here now was um uh maybe 18 or 19 years old and um I, it, in the back of the book, he had a suggested reading list. Mm-hmm. Oh, you read all those things, yeah. I read every one of those books. Mm. I just went through them. Some I resonated with more than others, but sure. I, I managed to get hold of all of them and read them. Did you do much of a drug phase during that period? 
Yeah, I did. Um, not, not, I wouldn't say I was ever heavily into drugs, but I was always interested in mind exploration. So I did, you know, a number of LSD trips. And when ecstasy came around, I, I was a real early ado- adopter of that way back in the 70s, actually. Yeah. And um, marijuana, you know, <laughs> in those days, all those, you know, mushrooms, etc. I would, I was very interested. I always used drugs kind of ritually, very interested in where it would take me uh, in the, in, in the outer reaches of my consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, I did too, at least uh, in theory. I mean, after a while, it got to be sort of just a muddle, you know, and I, I finally, one night I sat down and thought, said to myself, what are you doing? You know, you think you have these spiritual aspirations and you're totally screwing around. Time to shift gears here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and also, as Ram Dass once said, no matter how high he got, he always came down. On, when you're on, you know, if you're using drugs for that kind of expansion, it's a time-limited journey. And it has a price to pay, a physical price. So I that that fell away from me quite quite a long time ago. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I sh- you sh- we we should be on this topic because just this morning I was reading a post on my Batgap blog by this old friend of mine who, you know, is claiming that ever since his awakening, whatever that means, um, you know, drugs are so much more enjoyable. And you know, I, my response to that, although I haven't written one, would be something like. Well, you know, there are lots of things that you could mean by the word awakening, and there could be many stages of awakening. And and uh, to my mind, you know, if you've reached something really significant, I don't see how drugs could enhance it. You know, they, they could only mud it, muddle it up. It's kind of like the elephant. He takes a bath in the river, it comes out and throws mud on his back again. You know, it just doesn't add anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and... Um, um... Well, in the case of the elephant, it's probably, you know, there's some actual... Some, yeah, some function. reason for it. Keep but the bugs off. What I would say to it is that uh, at a certain level of sensitivity, you would experience what the drug is doing in your system, which I can't imagine is any good, you know. So I think that that's uh, also a part of what people uh, might consider about this word awakening is to be able to be attuned to your own embodiment and to your own you know, your own physical system. Yeah. And, and ultimately we're our own pharmacopoeia. I mean, you know, the, the, whatever chemicals or whatever the body needs to reflect whatever states of consciousness might be possible, you know, we're wired to be able to produce those. Absolutely. And, and I would say too, when we're, uh, you know, in our sweet spot, um, there, there are likely really happy chemicals running through as a, as well that are quite self-generated. Of course, there's the famous Neem Karoli Baba story when Ramdas brought him the LSD and he he took several of them and nothing happened. <laughs> uh, all right, so then you you really got into serious practice, 17 or 20 years or something of uh, intense Buddhist uh, meditation. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I found this community. Uh, Joseph Goldstein was my first, um, my first and primary Buddhist teacher, and um, who, he's wonderful and clear as a bell. And um, I found this fantastic community, and those, all of those friends from those days, many of whom are quite famous Buddhist teachers now, um, are still my very close friends. We went together on a big journey, but um, for me, 
there came a point when practice just fell away. I was never, I never was delighted by it, frankly. I, I never really enjoyed those rigorous, long days of sitting and just sitting on cushions for eight hours a day. It just never appealed to me. And I would do it because I thought one had to, to get anywhere. And because all my friends were into it, all my dear friends who I loved and trusted, and, and it was my world, it was my community, it was everything. So when this practice and this whole program started to fall away, not only was I losing um, the connection to what for me at that time was dharma, I was also losing a feeling of being on the inside and on the in-crowd with my friends because we no longer were agreeing on things, you know, and, and speaking the same language. So it was a very lonely, scary time for me whereby I felt not connected to worldliness and not connected to my Dharma community anymore, um, at least for that phase of transition. And that was a very uh, depressing phase, very depressing. But very uh, evolutionary, I would say. Yeah. Because, was... I mean, how would you like to still be sitting on that cushion after? <laughs> <laughs> I'm way too old for it now. <laughs> yeah, right. If they give you a rocker to sit yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, if they had a laying down room, I could manage it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that there's an important point in this, which is that, um, you know, the I think dedication and perseverance and stick to are important qualities on a spiritual path. But at a certain point, having the the kind of the independence of mind to leave it and do do something else maybe or do nothing for a while, that's also that's also important. And you kind of have to know intuitively which is which. You know what the right time for one or the other is. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and when something is falling away. Uh, uh, from my point of view, you know, I, I love the Gandhi quote, my, uh, my commitment is to truth, not to consistency. And to not just force a consistency to something just because you've put a lot of time in, right, when it is no longer true, when it's just no longer true for you. Yeah, I, I left the spiritual movement that I had been involved with for 25 years, and just at a certain point, it just felt like this is the way to go, you know. Um, and there was no sort of, a, I mean, there was a little bit of grumbling, like you know, about certain things, but for the most part, there was just appreciation for everything that I had derived from it. And okay, now what's next? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for me, the what's next turned out to be um, I met I met Punjaji. Um, After a couple of years of depression. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, I met Punjaji, and um, uh, that was a very happy uh, meeting. And of course, his message was so simple, and you know, and it's not as if there was some landing in awakening as a result of hearing that message and in kind of grokking and in, in imbibing that message, but rather that it's. It's been a long process of deeper and deeper relaxation mm -hmm. and in non-doing and in non-efforting and in just being, you know. To, to this day, right? To this day. Yeah, to this, yeah. To this very moment, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that, you know, it's, a, it's, I would say that when I was around him that first time, I went three times to, to meet him in India, the very first time 
something fell away and that something that fell away was seeking that seeking that had been going on since as i said i was about 12 years old when i started asking the big questions and it fell away into the mystery and i I began to realize i don't even have to have answers to anything (laughs) you know i'm just another creature here i'm just another animal on the planet you know and it's i don't have to know that much to get around and so all of the seeking and the the sort of big what i call the me project the self-improvement the trying to get better at anything um in terms of you know in terms of so-called spiritual qualities all of that just fell away and in the continuing relaxation um certain qualities just emerge on their own you know one gets as you know one becomes more understanding more more generous more easygoing you know more more embodied uh like we were saying you know you're tuned into your to your body and these this is this is the subject of my book passionate presence that these qualities just emerge all these qualities that we were looking for and trying to enhance in some way through spiritual practice lo and behold they're innate as long as you're just resting in the simplicity of being you know yeah at some point during this interview i want to talk about that book and about your seven qualities of awakened awareness that i heard you itemize in one of your talks um whenever i hear somebody talk about you know seeking dropped off or give up seeking and so on i'm just inclined to sort of add that it doesn't mean it's the end of discovery or exploration or as you say deepening or anything like that it just it's the end of a certain kind of desperation quality yeah Yeah, right it's it's (laughs) the end of this motor that's running you know that's like demanding you know to kind of seek and find rather one is open of course to like i call it sometimes winks from the mystery you know that the the mystery will wink at you and suddenly there's a little aha you know uh-huh. you know or something is revealed or or you know there's a deeper understanding about something or yeah yeah it's just a sort of a, a kind of a, des- a kind of a st- straining quality is yeah. is relaxed out of i remember i was on a long meditation course and uh, some guy got up to the mic and he said I want to have cosmic consciousness before I leave this course, even if they have to carry me out of here on a stretcher. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the wrong way about though. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> uh, Except that, you know, one of the things Punjadi used to say that was very delightful is, um, you know, people would say, well, all this straining and struggle that I've been doing, you know, are you, are you telling me it's just useless? And he'd say, well, no, it's useless that you'll discover it just didn't work. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so. There's also a fine line between a sort of a, an intense yearning and, and um, motivation for the full awakening and straining from a kind of an individual perspective you know what i mean it's like you, you hear stories of some great saints like uh ama the hugging saint so on and, and, and many others who were in their youth were just burning you know with this urgency for for awakening didn't want to live if, if it couldn't be but there was and so you, i guess you could call that seeking but there was just sort of a there's to me there's a subtle distinction between something like that and kind of a more ego-based or individuated trying to break down the gates kind of thing. Yeah, Punjaji used to call it holy yearning. Yeah, there you go. 
Yeah, um, and I would also add that I think for some people that kind of burning might be a prerequisite before they sort of come to the relaxation part, that they have to kind of burn hot for a long time before the, that those uh, coals kind of cool off. Um, but for others, I've known many others over the course of years of having my sessions, they can come to it more quietly. They can... They can come to it without having. I happen to be one who did have that burning in a kind of desperation because I was trying so desperately to make sense of the intense suffering I was experiencing. Um, but I have certainly met, um, you know, many others who, you know, didn't have to go through that fire. Maybe it's safe to say there's no universal prescription or explanation. It's this very individual consideration and, and one size does not fit all, you know. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about more about your time with uh, Papaji or Punjaji. Um, what would you like to say about that? It was obviously quite a scene. I mean, there's so many people who are, you know, who have come here, whom I've interviewed, and who who came, who went to Lucknow and then came back, kind of like on fire with what they had experienced there. Yeah. Well, he was he was quite a, a you know a, a gigantic transmitter of of the message without you know even trying, just hanging around him. So that was extremely beautiful. Sometimes people will ask me, what exactly did you gain from, what was the, what was the transmission, you know? And uh, as I said earlier, the falling away of the seeking and also some kind of confidence, uh, some kind of confidence that one really can just relax and you know, give up the fight and, and, and really trust in the deep quietude and the, and the quiet, of, quiet of the heart, that you can just live from that, that there's a kind of intelligence that comes from that, that really it's the one and only thing you need to really remember and all the rest of it unfolds, you know. Um, so I'd say that those were the takeaways from the experience there in Lucknow and over these many years, I mean, he's been dead a long time as well now. Um, I would say I have my own expression of this. I'm not this. I'm not just some cookie cutter. You know, he he was his own person and had his own way of seeing. And and I don't entirely see it exactly like he does on all points, or that he did. Um, but I'm just so grateful for, you know, what he what he pointed out and what he was. I would suggest maybe that the the giving up of seeking and the confidence were um, kind of effects more than causes. They were symptoms, you know, of of a kind of an inner awakening that got um, kindled in his presence. And um, so it's not like you made some kind of conscious intention to give up seeking. It's it's more like it was able to drop away finally uh, once that sort of inner awareness was more enlivened in his presence. That's exactly right. Exactly right. You probably have a list of things because I can see you've done your homework, which I so appreciate. I used to be a, a journalist myself. Oh, we can take this in whatever direction you want, and you so know, I'll, yeah. I would like to take this in, and it's because I'm thinking about it all the time. And that is, we are in a world that's in trouble. We're really in a world that's in trouble. Um, I mean, it seems that you, we could talk about any number of things any one of which could threaten the survival of our species. You know, rogue nuclear um, materials and capabilities. Um, 
climate change, so, um, climate genetic change. genetic engineering, you know, is poisoning Fukushima. Yeah, there's a big radiation cloud floating yeah. across the Pacific. And, and, and tons and hundreds and thousands of tons of radioactive water going into the Pacific and on and on. I mean, there is... There is just, it seems, no end. And not only that, but more and more humans on this planet struggling for fewer and fewer resources, fewer and less and less clean water. And so, you know, sometimes I feel that the the focus on sort of personal delight and happiness, I mean, of course, that's important, um, but a little bit self-indulgent or something. Sometimes I feel so, and mm. it was always it was always my sense. Even as a young journalist, I focused on activism, you know. Um, and so, one of the things I think a lot about is the ways that we, who have been in this sort of spiritual community, are going to be called upon um, in these coming years, and how important it is for us and and because of our privilege and how incumbent it is upon us to really be clear and to uh to not go into any kind of transcendent conversation or perspectives um you know to really be solid and clear and strong um and i i feel i feel that i'm in my own case i feel like i'm being honed for that Mm-hmm. And have been. Do, do you for, feel for, that? For, oh yeah, for yeah. for decades. And um, uh, this is exciting that we're, you're bringing this up. Um, I've kind of touched upon it in some recent interviews. I, I interviewed Foster and Kimberly Gamble a couple of weeks ago, who did the Thrive movie, and we talked about this stuff a lot. And I have Llewellyn Von Lee coming up in November, who just wrote a book on spiritual ecology. And, uh, you know, he's always identified, I'm just using him as a case in point, he's always kind of identified himself as a mystic who was primarily concerned with inner dimensions and so on. And he, he now feels called to um, take on this mission of the, the ecology and, uh, the, the, you know, the climate and so on. And, but the, the interesting thing in his book, which is really a collection of essays from a lot of different writers, is that they're all pointing to the spiritual dimension as being the ultimate uh, solution, not the exclusive solution, but an essential component of any meaningful solution. And that without that, there's a sort of a baselessness, uh, which, which will cause you know, uh, more material solutions to ultimately fail. Right, exactly. I mean, Einstein said it long ago, didn't he, that, you know, that we, we can't solve the problem at the same level of consciousness that the problem was created, uh, something like that. Um, uh, and um, um, yes, of course. And I think one of the primary things that is desperately needed is is a a worldwide focus or or expansion into empathy. That one of my friends, Jeremy Rif- Rifkin, wrote a beautiful book called "The Empathic Civil Empath- The Empathic Civilization." Um, you know that that's what that's what we have to have now. Um, and of course, that's exactly our our uh, field. Is is in consciousness there is automatic empathy. Um, and and another thing that I speak a lot about is in the understanding, in in the deepening and quiet of one's own clear space. There's just more contentment. 
contentment is sorely missing in this world and it's also part of why we're destroying ourselves is just this constant gulping of the resources because people are just not easily content especially in the western world yeah well both of these things point to really inner qualities you know contentment and and you can't superimpose empathy on a person you know it has to uh, kind of uh, d spring, spring naturally from some inner state w in which it is abundant you know I'm reminded that that verse in the uh, Old Testament my cup runneth over you know if the cup isn't full it's not going to run over <laughs> yes, exactly yeah I often speak about letting your well fill up so that it runs over you know letting your own inner well fill up and you know in all the ways that that we know yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's encouraging to me. I, I interviewed a guy named Talat Jonathan Phillips uh, a few months ago, and he was um, kind of a activist during the, the, Bush, the Bush years, you know, protesting and, and this and that. And uh, also, I think, involved in uh, that, whatchamacallit, uh, and well, the what, what's that thing? The anti, the, the yeah, the thing that happened a couple of years ago. The Occupy Wall Street. Occupy, of course. Yeah, I was thinking <laughs> yeah. Wall Street, but I couldn't remember Occupy. <laughs> but in any case, what he observed is that there used to be this gulf between spiritual people and the activist people, mm -hmm. and you probably observed this too. And they couldn't understand each other, and you know, each of them thought the other was sort of out to lunch, you know, and just, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it seems to have um, been bridged now to a great extent in many people, at least, where um, they're, each side is kind of recognizing the validity and significance and importance of the other and incorporating both within their own experience and activity. Yeah, I see that very much so. And, um, and it's, and I, and I also, uh, you know, honor people's nature. Some people are just you know, more comfortable in the sort of activist world with perhaps some, you know, influence from the spiritual types. And some are, it's almost like cast, different casts. One, some are warrior cast, some are priest cast. But um, to have a great sort of tribal, you know, um, communication and effort together is, is a good idea. Um, yeah. Or dharmas. You use the word dharma a lot. It often is, it often is defined as that course of action which is most appropriate and evolutionary for, yeah. you know, for you. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, I've known a lot of activists over the years. And, and um, you know, if you're just if you're just moving from anger and outrage and wanting to stop people that you perceive as evil, you know, you're going to burn out. You're basically running on you know, hate and anger. It's, you're, it's, you're doing what Einstein said not to do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll just you'll just burn out. And and uh, and not only that, it's not very effective. But yet, also, we know on the other side, just being kind of sort of spiritually obsessed with yourself and having a grand old time, or in some sort of transcendent story whereby you see this world as illusion, is also incredibly. Um, to my mind, ignorant and, and, and ineffective. <laughs> you said something great in one of your uh, writings that I, I, this is going to be one of my mantras now, you said you're, uh, regarding re dismissing the suffering of the world as illusion, you said you're only entitled to do that if you can be burned at the stake and dismiss that as an illusion. <laughs> if you regard the world as illusion, yet still get annoyed at petty things, you're a spiritual hypocrite. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. So what are you doing uh, in terms of, 
I think you're doing something to help animals. And I, I remember hearing, and, and then I heard, uh, what, what, what sorts of ways are you engaging in, in kind of a spiritual activism? You know, it is interesting, um, having, you know, known so many activists, worked as a journalist in, in activist uh, material a lot, and been on lots of boards for human rights, I find myself the most brokenhearted somehow about what's happening to the world's creatures, to the other, to the other animals. Um, because they're so innocent? They're, because they're so innocent, yeah. And because we're seeing the last of them. I mean, it's, we're, you know, we are just on a rampage of, you know, I just, I just got to, I'm, I'm unfortunately privy to so much information about what's going on with the animals. Uh, so I hear, you know, pretty much daily because I'm on this board, Global Animal, wonderful organization. And I uh, just heard yesterday about, uh, you know, all the poaching that's going on of the elephants, killing the elephants just in droves. Now they're not even bothering to shoot them. They're poisoning them. So it's, they're poisoning their water supplies, which is also going to poison a lot of the other animals using those same, well, um, you know, rivers and lakes. It's really heartbreaking and shocking what we're doing. And so, yes, I find myself really caring now much more in a sense about the about the other animals because the humans are overrunning we're we're overrunning our own population they are diminishing you know mm. and there's so many other examples you could you know the the clear cutting of the orang orangutans natural habitat and just so many things i mean so many species go extinct every day yeah that's right yeah. um yeah so but... so when we get right down to it though you know, is the is the sort of the presence of spiritual people on earth somehow going to change the hearts of the poachers and the clear cutters? Or do we have to get in there with, uh, you know, Uzis and, and you know, <laughs> go, you know, the rain, park rangers go in there and try to fight these guys and, and stop them? I mean, where do you... How do you do it? I know. How do you do it? We're, it's a race, Rick. We're mm -hmm. in a race, you know? Yeah. Um, there's, of course, a lot of a lot of evidence for a, a, an awakening of consciousness on the planet whereby, you know, more and more people are saying certain types of behavior are simply not okay. But at the same time, the rate of destruction is such that it takes your breath away. Um, so uh, it's hard to know. I, I, I would be, I, I can't venture even a guess as to, as to um, how it's going to play out and what in specific cases we should do. Um, yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, and there's so many other examples. I mean, the whole big debate about Syria right now. Yeah. Okay, you know, what do we do? Uh, to me, it's not as black and white as, as most people are thinking. Um, I, on, I can see the, the argument for going in there and, and doing some str strategic strikes as a, um, as a slap on the wrist or whatever for, you know, using poison gas. And I can also understand, you know, people not wanting to do that. But ultimately, is there any solution to that and so many other problems uh, on that level? Um, any, you know, it's, it's I mean, like in the Gita, Arjuna said, you know, I don't want to kill these people. I, I would just as soon live on alms in this world. And, and Krishna said, no, you have to fight. Fighting is, is what's called for in this circumstance. Right. You have to do your duty in this yeah. circumstance. Yeah, I, I know. But that, this, is al this is always a hard one. And, and as one who, I mean, I, I, you know, having been 
in Gandhian thought for much of most of my adult life, I have tweaked my my uh, fanaticism about it because there are times when I think, yeah, you know, we're going to have to just fight the fight. You know, I'm not sure this is one of them, but um, I have had those thoughts and feelings about certain circumstances. Um, you know, and. I mean, the classic one that's always used is Hitler. Of course, it's, I'm glad we stopped Hitler, you know. Um, and there are plenty of other times when I see some, you know, bad actor get stopped. And I'm, however you stop him, fine, it's fair, you know, because it's, you always want to look at what is the greater good and, you know, what is the least suffering, you know. So those are the questions. I don't know that any strike in Syria is going to ultimately work out well for anybody, you know. I just don't know. I, it's certainly not been the case uh, in the last 12 years of our in, uh, interventions. Yeah. But then nothing in the relative is uh, 100%, you know, good or bad there's always this sort of mixed bag yeah that's true yeah that's true yeah Lawrence yeah. Vanderpost was one of my favorite authors I used to read all of his books uh, he was a South African writer and he wrote um, some beautiful books about yes. the bush you ever read yes. him yes what was that yeah, uh, a story like the wind in a far yes. off place Yes, yeah. story like the wind. Oh my, and, uh, beautiful. He, he was such an interesting guy because, uh, on the one hand, he was a soldier and an adventurer, and he lived this very sort of active, you know, um, life. And on the other hand, he was best friends with Carl Jung, and he was re like a really deep spiritual man. So he he managed to kind of blend these qualities together very nicely. And one of his lesser-known books was one was called The Prisoner and the Bomb, mm. and he was a prisoner in a Japanese uh, prisoner of war camp during World War. Too. And they had a little clandestine radio that they were listening to, you know, the Japanese didn't know they had. And they heard about this event that had taken place. In, is this in, book or is it in real life? It's a book. Well, it's, it's a true book. It's a, it's a true account of his experience. And he heard about, they heard about this, uh, this kind of miraculous, this awesome event that had taken place in Hiroshima. And the Japanese were talking of it as if it were some kind of divine, you know, thing that not in a good sense but just sort of you know this and 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 he went on to argue in the book that in favor of having used nuclear weapons there uh he, he you know he said well if we hadn't it would have become a ground war in japan and a million u.s troops would have died you know and and how however many japanese so it's another one of those kind of sticky wickets where you know, it's like it's so hard to be moralistically certain on one side or the other. I know. It's you true. Know? It's like the fortunate or unfortunate story. And, you know, that, that one, the fortunate or unfortunate where the farmer has two horses and one. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. 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 And mm. yeah. Uh, so and I, I, we're kind of leaving ourselves in a state of uncertainty, which I think is great. Um you know, this is know, just it kind of brings us back, you know, it just brings you back to your own, your own goodness, your own commitment to goodness, however it plays out. You know, you can't really have it attached to outcome. It has to be only for its own sake every single day. There's a quote I love from, from W.S. Merwin, who has become a friend when I was living on Maui. Um, he said, on the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. And I, I just love the sentiment of that, that the that you just keep doing it for its own sake, you know, and and do it from the sweetness of your own heart, you know, whatever whatever your actions in the world. Yeah. 
what I uh, just what I kind of think it comes down to is well you just sort of said it but you just keep you know stoking your fire as best you can and uh, you know as best you know how um, give give uh, plenty of attention to your spiritual development um, but but that's not all one does in life one has to eat one has to sleep one has to work and so naturally there's the activity phase of your life and and, and that saying yeah, and yeah all that stuff break bread and all of those things yeah and that will be nourished by your spiritual life and uh and perhaps aligned more kind of um evolutionarily you know and so you can kind of life can kind of come into a a harmonious balance where you can be fighting the good fight but doing so not from a standpoint of righteousness because that's that has a kind of a moralistic implication but from the standpoint of kind of natural law we might we might say or just attunement with divine will or <laughs> some such thing natural empathy yeah yeah yes indeed yeah yeah would you like to say anything more on that whole theme of you know the state of the world and and what well, I mean, most of the people who listen to the show are would consider themselves to be spiritually motivated people, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, what more can you say about <laughs> what Buddha at the gas pump? Actually. Yeah, right. <laughs> what, what more can you say about what a spiritually motivated person might do or would want to know, uh, you know, with when confronted with the all the horrors of the world? Um, another well, another aspect that I think a lot about in this regard is the intensification of letting go as one goes along in this world you know that at the one at the one on the one hand you're you're showing up and you're celebrating and you're giving it your all and 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 so on but on at the same time you're also saying a lot of goodbyes you know you're 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 getting pretty adept aren't we at letting go we're getting pretty much the hang of it here um and it seems that you know you can hardly get through a week without some new thing to be letting go of some big situation you know especially at this age uh i you know hear about this. you mean like friends dying and stuff yeah or, friends yeah. dying diagnosis of this and that and just you know um uh, you know, just, and also just a sensing of loss on the horizon, you know. So um, that is, that also has a very powerful effect on, I think, one's perspective, one's uh, capacity for love, for appreciation, for generosity, for, for not holding on to things unnecessarily, for truly not sweating the small stuff, and so on. Um I'd say that's another component of, you know, it's, I, ha I said something many, many years ago in an interview where I talked about seeing the glory with tears in your eyes, you know, that, that you're, that we're, that there's a way in which, you know, I'm looking at all of this, you know, all of this, seeing it and feeling it and loving it so much. And at the same time, I, I, I often have tears in my eyes, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that, uh, I have a quote from you here, seeing the divine in everything, the beautiful and the horrible. Um, and you talk a lot about sort of being brokenhearted, wide open, you know, just kind of letting everything flow through you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I get, I seemingly get more and more uh, brokenhearted. <laughs> and that seems to be a, a kind of a universal spiritual characteristic too. At least you hear a lot of people talk about it. Um, in fact, I have a one friend. He said it after he he had a profound awakening he couldn't go to movies anymore because he'd make a scene you know crying you know <laughs> oh, <laughs> even in movies that weren't really that sad he just gets so I, <laughs> I know and sometimes someone will be telling me something sad and I'll, I'll have tears running down my face you know and I it sometimes I, I sometimes want to say to them don't worry this happens all the time I'm not <laughs> yeah not really that bad <laughs> but Oh. That was beautiful. I, I mentioned Ama earlier. Right? We, my wife and I go to see Ama every couple times a year, and uh, it's, it's interesting to watch her in that respect because you know, person after person after person will come come to her, and and she's just like clouds, you know, moving along. And one person will come, and, and there'll be tears running down her cheek, and you know, she'll be mopping. And the next person will come, and she'll be laughing uproariously. And the next person, and then something will happen, and she'll get a little angry over here, you know, and, and it's just like boom, 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 without any kind of um, rigidity or, or yes, stagnation. Yes, a great fluidity. Punjab yeah. had that, and it's something I so admire, and I see it as a as a as a conditioned of a condition of really being in your your truest, deepest self, which mm -hmm. is that it would be like weather flowing. All of these emotions and feelings, they move through very quickly when you're letting yourself be this kind of expanse in mm -hmm. which nothing is really sticking. Um, and yes, I, I love that. I love that, you know, that one could be crying one moment and laughing the next, like a child. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's that old Sanskrit or I don't know if it's there's this sort of Indian philosophy thing about line on stone, line on sand, line on water, line on air. You know, uh, in terms of um, the flexibility of the nervous system and and how how with some people they're very kind of rigid and and impressions stay, and with others they just kind of you know you can make a deeper line on air than you can make on stone, so the, the experience is rich, but it just passes by. Yes, that's great. I've never heard that before. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. And also, I mean, just mention Ama again. It's like, here's someone who, if anyone is qualified to do so, probably can see the illusory nature of the relative world, and yet, you know, exerts every ounce of strength to do something to improve it. You know, um, try, all these practical things, you know, trying to get you know, young girls out of prostitution and, you know, taking care of widows and, and building houses for tsunami victims and just all this stuff. Uh, so, you know, this whole thing about um, spirituality leaving you in some kind of dream world where, you know, you don't care about the world. In fact, somebody else was posting something like that on my blog the other day. He's saying, I've gotten to a point where I just don't care about anything. There's this sort of, you know, indifference. And, uh, and I, you know, I didn't respond again because I'm too busy. But my feeling was, you know, don't consider yourself done, dude. Uh, you know. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like uh, you know, the Herman Hesse book of uh, Siddhartha. You know, you basically find yourself, or the, or the, or the ox herding pictures, the tents yeah. and ox, you find yourself back in the marketplace. You back know, in the really, marketplace, If you yeah. go the whole journey, you know, um, then you're going to be back in the marketplace caring about the other beings here, you know, of course. Yeah. If you truly see it 
as all your own, you know, self as your as your as the manifestation of whatever blazed this into existence. You can't help but feel it as that, you know. And you know, there's you know in, in, incredible tenderness for it. Mm. Hey, would you mind if I interject a completely um, off-topic, irrelevant, trivial comment? Sure. You look a lot like Jackie Kennedy Onassis. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, people have been telling me that? <laughs> They came into power like in, you know, when I was about the second grade or something. And I've been hearing it my whole life. Okay. Just wanted to, <laughs> just wanted to say. <laughs> okay, so that's a, oh, go ahead. Some stopped me at restaurants and told me that. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> so that segues, segues us into another thing I'd like to talk about. And feel free to loop back to anything else that occurs to you, you know, or in terms of things we've covered, like this whole activism and, and animals and environment stuff. But um, you you went into quite a lot of during your dark night of the soul phase, I guess we could call it. After you came walked away from the Buddhist practice, you went into a phase which perhaps you're still in to some extent, where you didn't believe anymore in a lot of things you had believed in karma, reincarnation, and whatnot. Um, would you? I'd like to discuss that a little bit. Would you, would you say you? don't believe in them or is it more that certainties became theories you know like the jury is out who knows if there's reincarnation or karma i can't say there is but i can't right. say there isn't no, that's exactly i'm completely agnostic about it i don't believe it per se um but i certainly wouldn't uh claim, i wouldn't claim that it isn't the case that i that i could have any access to know that you know but i but i don't i don't uh have those beliefs they fell away i used to have them i used to entertain them i could say for many years because they made the world just so i really liked them and yeah, it helped you make sense of things helped me make sense of things and so but they began to fall away and i couldn't <laughs> speaking of some of the other furry creatures um i <laughs> uh those those beliefs fell away uh and yeah, they they've never come back. Yeah, I I'd say speaking for myself, I believe in them because uh, they do make sense. It's like I, I believe in all kinds of things that I haven't experienced. I believe that extraterrestrials have visited our planet and perhaps are still doing so, but I have no proof of it. You know, mm -hmm. but it just it kind of makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like. But but if if somehow someone were able to disprove it entirely, this it's more like an intuitive thing. But who knows? It might just be my bias. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a story of Einstein. Speaking of Einstein again, where um, they sent an expedition to South Africa, Southern Africa, someplace, someplace in Africa, to measure the bending of starlight by the sun's gravity during an eclipse. Uh, and that would prove or disprove his theory of relativity. And it turned out, you know, starlight was bent and it proved the theory. And they came to Einstein and said, you know, what would you have done if the theory had been disproven? And he said, I would have been sorry for the dear Lord. The, pro the, the theory is correct. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Because <laughs> he just had this intuitive knowing, no. you know. And so perhaps that, you know, that's the way in which these things we're referring to if they can be known, that's how they can be known. In fact, you know, Patanjali talks of a city where you remember your past lives. When, when Adyashanti had his second significant awakening, all these past lives fl flashed in front of him. And one could say, well, that's in your DNA, or it's just something from watching too many movies when you're a kid or something, but who knows? Yeah, who knows? I know. Yeah, I, again, I don't... Uh 
unfortunately, I don't, I used to think a lot about all of that, you know, when I was younger and, and somehow uh, I'm spared a lot of, you know, consideration about these, these matters. I just am content to not know. And um, yeah. You talked about, you know, at our age, things falling away. Uh, if, if, if you experientially, though, if you really, if it were your experience that all you are is this body, and when this body dies, you're finished, if that were really solidly your experience, uh, I don't think you'd be able to let things fall away as easily or as, you know, effortlessly as you do. I think there, through all your spiritual practice and development, there must be some innate experience that you are uh, something deeper than that, something less transitory. Well, this is an interesting discussion because sometimes I say in my sessions that in this recognition, um, there is a there's an experience of eternity like you're recognizing something that is eternally manifesting itself right um and yet you're only recognizing it for a short time it's like you're, you're it's like an experience of eternity but for a very short time during so, your lifetime you mean yeah so it's as if you're you're recognizing something that is blazing away but that the expression of you, and you know, this is my view, the expression of you is just this momentary flash of it. Um, and, you know, I'll be happily surprised if uh, I find myself continuing on in any form that it's recognizable that I could remember or whatever, um, you know. But I don't really have that expectation. And as a result every one of these moments become incredibly precious, right? I mean, incredibly, their, their stock goes way up. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the very transitoriness of it in, intensely uh, enhances it, in, in my view. Yeah, and along these lines, I heard you discuss how in your experience there's this sort of... Um dual kind of paradoxical simultaneous uh, dwelling in eternity along with relative, you know, temporary stuff. I, you, you phrased it much more nicely, but I guess that's what you're alluding to, that, that, that one kind of has a foot in both camps, so to speak. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, now, a number of people say that um, they go through a phase where it's like they are recognizing this eternity, they're recognizing this silence, and then something shifts or turns, and suddenly that's they're actually they are that silence, they are that eternity. Recognize perhaps from that perspective, from that vantage point, recognizing transitory world, recognizing individuality. But the the orientation shifts so that that's really where they have taken their stand, mm -hmm. and as such, they know themselves to be something which isn't going to be influenced by the death of the body. Um, you know, I've, I've had so many experiences that are hard to give words to over the course of my life, and I've heard people describe similar types of experiences in, in hundreds or thousands, perhaps. Um, 
these experiences come and go. You know, they're, I, they're rarely a steady state. Um, I know examples in which they are, though. Do you? Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I, I have one friend, for instance, who hasn't, says he hasn't lost this sort of establishment as pure awareness since he was 10, 12 years old. Now he's in his mid-60s. Mm -hmm. 24-7, I'm talking, you know, throughout the night. He says he hasn't been asleep in 50 years. <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, obviously his body goes to sleep. He probably snores, but the inner awareness is never overshadowed. Uh-huh, I see. Yeah. Well, in any case, you know, maybe there are some exceptions, but, um, but uh, from my point of view, it, it, even a steady state is not even required or, you know, that one's awareness can sort of dance around in relative and in, you know, in, in a more expansive what's called the absolute, and easily move back between the territories and, and one infuses the other, just like the yin-yang symbol, you know, that's good enough, you know, that's, that will transform your life. Having, having those, you know, those places from which you move, sometimes it's really cool to just be very, very relative about something. I mean, in fact, being with Punjaji, you know, he would care um, about how much you were paying for the bananas, you know, and he would tell you which banana seller to go to and which train to take, right? And he and, he and I were, would constantly discuss the news because he was an avid reader of the newspaper. As was I, Ramana Maharshi. Was he? I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, he used to, used to, probably he was following the events of World War II, but he used to read the paper all the time and listen to the radio and stuff. I didn't know that, yeah. yeah. And Punjaji the same. And, and so... You know, to um, you know, to give give it its due, and to and to participate, and to care, um, you know, uh, is admirable to me. Yeah. Well, you know, with the yin yang symbol, there's always a white dot in the black right. and a black dot in the white. That's what I meant. Uh, yeah, but it's kind of a question of ratio. Who's to say that? I mean, that when Ramana Maharshi, or for that matter, Punjaji, was reading the newspaper or worrying about the banana sellers, that you know that that could have just been the little dot in oh, a much yes. in, in a much larger wholeness that per, I, was perpetual and predominant. I assume that. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely assume that. And I, I feel the same in my own case when I hear, as I have recently, one of my best friends has pancreatic cancer. There's a part of me that is, that is, there's a part of my awareness that is tracking that on a daily basis. But I would say that it's like that dot, you know, it's strong and it's very obvious in the, in the, in the screen of the awareness. Um, but it's, you know, it's, there's a lot else going on. There's a lot else, and it, it is uh, in the mix. Is just the understanding that everybody dies. You know, mm -hmm. um, no you one know. gets out of here alive. <laughs> That's right, exactly. <laughs> the end of the story is everybody dies. You know. <laughs> yeah, and obviously from the viewpoint of the objective observer, you really don't know what a person's inner reality is. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, people looked at Christ on the cross and, and must have thought, oh, what a horrible experience. He must be suffering so much. For all we know, that was just a little dot in a, in a much larger reality that uh, was, you know, not suffering. Well, in contemporary time, we've seen, you and I grew, grew up in, a, in an era when we saw on television Vietnamese monks self-immolating, uh, you know, setting themselves on fire and sitting there, sitting there, remember that? Just sitting there still. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, yes, of course, um, in the deepening of this understanding, it, it, it saturates uh, all the experience and all of the perspectives. That's why I was saying earlier when, I, when I'm crying with someone, I want to say to them, don't worry. You know, yeah, I'm okay. Not, this is not that big a deal. It's just some part of myself is in the, is in the moment of grief. <laughs> that's beautiful and and it's important um and so what we're, what we're saying is that it's not that you kind of swing from one pendulum extreme to the other it's that within a kind of a, a larger wholeness comes to contain all these polarities and swings and different experiences but that larger wholeness is not perturbed by them just the way the ocean isn't perturbed by the fish and the currents and all the other things that are happening within it that's right. I often speak about what I call coexisting awareness, whereby we have different types of awareness that coexist, just as we all know when we're watching a movie, we know we're in the theater, or else we'd run out of the theater when they started shooting on the screen. We don't do that because we know we're sitting in the theater and we're very involved in the movie. Or I sometimes use the experience, the metaphor of uh, as you alluded to, the ocean, you can have a storm on the ocean, but the Marianas Trench in the depths of miles down in the ocean is very still. It's, you know, it's, it's the same ocean, but there's different activities happening. And in this expansive awareness, and especially as it gets quiet, as it gets generally quieter and is just letting whatever arises arise and flee away as they do, um, it, it can, there's, there can be a lot happening, popping about, you know, just passing through very, very quickly and very uh, freely. Reminds me of something I, when I was about 19 years old, my girlfriend left me and went back to taking heroin and I, I went to my meditation teacher and I was really upset about it and she said, be an ocean. Uh, a very good advice. <laughs> yes, love yeah. it. Yeah. Did you take that advice? Did it work out for you? As best I could. I, I didn't want to make a mood of it because I felt oh. like the, the real significance of that is not just to walk around thinking I'm an ocean, I'm an ocean, but right. I continued my spiritual practice to become more ocean-like. Yeah, lovely. lovely. <laughs> yeah. 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 Shed a few uh, little ocean drops, maybe from your eyes. <laughs> I did actually. I, 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 she kind of left during an encounter group I was in, and I just completely broke down. It's one, I'm not. I don't cry easily, not as easily as you do. But it was one of the few times in my life when I just completely sobbed, you know, and f fell into somebody's arms and just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed until it. It was just like it wasn't even about her. It was about it was just some. It triggered some catharsis. So. Um, are you still keen on the seven qualities of awakened awareness that I heard you talk about? Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit because okay, that yeah. was very interesting. I, yeah. yeah, and I, I would also say I, I call them seven. In, the very, in my first book, the, um, the publishers made me put experiencing the seven qualities of awakened awareness. Mm -hmm. I never wanted that subtitle. And so when yeah. I... There when could I, be six, there could be eight, yeah. <laughs> there could be, could be a I thousand. Read, exactly. <laughs> when I redid the book, I made it my own and just okay. said, is called its passionate presence, seven qualities of awakened awareness. And point being that um, I began to notice in my retreats um, that people would come and they would, all we were doing was hanging out in this free space, you know, just emptying out, you could say, and, and um, livening up. Um, and I would notice these, quali these qualities would just emerge in people. Um, you know, just generosity and 
authenticity. People would speak more authentically, um, like really say the real stuff. Um, tenderness, delight, wonder, all of these qualities, seven of them, I'm probably forgetting one or two, discernment, they would just come. They would just arise. And I, I found it true then when I wrote the book many years ago and, and true to this day. I just gave a talk about it at a local unity church here. <laughs> Do you feel that somehow those qualities are inherent within awareness uh, as, as, as if kind of components of awareness itself? Or do you feel that it's sort of when the, the interface between awareness and, and our individuality gets uh, nicely connected, then somehow awareness, then somehow the, those qualities are just kind of expressed more by the relative personality. I think think that's a really interesting and good way to see it. And of course, as with any of uh, our various talents in life, we're all on a spectrum. So some people might be in their quietude, they might be extremely tender, and maybe less discerning, and others vice versa. Um, But I would say all of these qualities are very typical. um, And I like your uh, expression about how the relative kind of brings them out, you know, that living in the world and in, in engaging with people. Some of them, there were two that I had on that list, silence, um, which is just the, the falling into or the way that the set point of the awareness is basically just very quiet. Um, and wonder, which is also a component that is not necessarily engaged with other people, but it's, it's just sort of looking at the whole picture in a kind of um, appreciation of its mysteriousness. So in terms of your own experience now, um, here's another doggy <laughs> doing there. Um, you have two dogs? Yeah, we do. Two, one of them sleeping here, one of them standing here. I can almost lift him up to say hello. Come here. <laughs> there he is. Hello. Oh. <laughs> oh, he's about eight or so, and the other one's pretty old, like fourteen, but they're they're in good health. <clears throat> and then we have a, a very old cat, also. I love having animals around. You know, they're these they're these reminders of what unconditional love looks like. You know, <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah, pure love. You know, they really enrich your life. Yeah, they do. They they also have this sort of. Uh, innocent quality that you kind of entrain with to a great yes. extent, you know? I know. And it, it kind of enlivens your own innocence and yeah. chi- childlike. It's just like playing with children, you know? You get down on the floor and you become like a little child and it cultures something in you. Yeah, I was about to say, and, and or what it feels like when you're like with a baby, you know, when there's a baby in the room. It's, it's, it's like this you know, direct line to that purity of being. So animals are kind of like that all the time. (laughs) Yes, I know. I know. Yeah. In fact, one of my great emphasis on on my retreats and in and in my sessions is to be more and more like an awake animal, a conscious animal. Um, Just that simple. Not have to be anything fancy, some kind of fancy spiritual, you know, hoo ha, but rather just just another creature. Right, a human creature, which is a more complex creature than most, um, and um, just be that, you know. Just let yourself be very simply that. And 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 I I encourage people to watch 
their pets, their dogs and cats and whatever kind of pets they have, uh, and to entrain with that, that kind of consciousness. Do you, on your retreats and all, do you advocate any sort of practice or do you just talk to people and somehow it, it, it's a nice weekend? Or <laughs> <laughs> My retreats, have, they're, first of all, they're silent retreats with the exception of sessions of Dharma Dialogue. So, for instance, we're having one in it, Italy soon, a residential retreat, a seven-day retreat. Other than the two sessions with me, and then there's two yoga sessions in which the yoga teacher gives instruction during the day, there's no talking. Everyone is in silence. And the silence, I always say, does all the work. You know, you just start to get on a frequency of deep inner quiet. And you, you don't have to manifest your personality because you're not having to engage. So there's a way in which you, you do become like an awake animal. You're wandering about. You're feeling the breeze on your face. You smell things. You, you know when it's time to eat. You know when it's time to move. You, you know when it's time to bathe. All of it becomes very instinctual, intuitive. And, um, and you also begin to see how unnecessary most of the activity of mind actually is. You know that most of it is really spam. You know, and yeah, you know, and you start to parse out easily and quickly what is unnecessary to pay attention to, and that becomes a habit. And you start, you really start to live in such a way that you see that you don't have to pay attention to most of what's going on uh, in your head. I don't know why evolution has gone this way. I I think it's it's pretty contraindicated for our health. Um, probably at one time it was great for us to be such thinking creatures and to be constantly on problems and anticipating stuff in the future and, and so on. But I don't think it's useful now. And I, I wonder sometimes if another aspect of our evolutionary journey as humans might be that we... Um, train ourselves in a sense to ignore most of the uh, extraneous thought that is just causing trouble. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, the pace of life is so fast these days yes. and there's so much information impinging yes. on us. Yeah. I, I once heard the, heard the presidency described as like trying to drink from a fire hose, but I've, I've also begun hearing people refer to their life and everyone's life as being like that. You know, there's just so much coming at you. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, interesting metaphor, really. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that... It's like trying to drink from Niagara Falls. <laughs> yeah. And if you've never taken recourse to silence, you know, if you've never tried, if you've never established any kind of connection with that inner silence, yeah. um, then that's all you've got is this, you know, this deluge of, of stuff coming at you. And you can see why people are so crazy. Exactly. And I also why more and more I think it's necessary to really deliberately unplug, you know, just to, re I mean, almost like you have to force yourself into it, you know, because otherwise, if you're just living your normal life, even with a relationship to your own inner quiet, it's still very hard. You're under a deluge, almost all of us, you know, just the, you know, I mean, you and I know very well that much of our life we grew up, there was no email, 
I mean, I even remember when phone messages came online, you know. Yeah, right. It, it used to be that the only time you got a phone call was that when you went home and you were at home and the phone rang, you know. Right, you could answer it. You could yeah. answer it, but otherwise you didn't have to walk in the door and find out who's been calling you while you were gone. And now we all live in such a way that even when we're sleeping, messages are coming in waiting for us, you know, when we wake up. We're never really off. And... um so to really sometimes deliberately empty out, completely unplug, and be away from all of that. You know, sometimes people now go on their vacations, but they have to be somewhere where there's Wi-Fi connection because they have to be online. And I think it's generally unhealthy to, to have to be collating information just all the time. Yeah. And, you know, people don't have to quit their jobs or leave their families or any of that other stuff. You, you can, but as you say, if you can take a, a, a break from it, uh, and you can take daily breaks if you have some sort of meditation practice, um, but, but then also occasional weekend breaks or week-long breaks or things like that can really make a big difference. Absolutely. All, I think almost everyone needs that. Um, mm -hmm. And there may be people for whom... They can be still in the middle of a tremendous amount of movement, you know, like a center of a top or the eye of a hurricane. But I think most of us, I certainly count myself in, in this category, need to unplug now and again and to, to varying degrees. Yeah. Um, I was a student of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's for, very, for a long time. And the first time I ever went to a course with him, the first lecture he gave was, he said, survival of the fittest is the law of nature and we have to be fittest. He said there's so much, the pace of modern life is so fast now that, you know, you have to, um, you know, deepen the silence in order to counterbalance it. Mm -hmm. and, and he said, you know, there's, if if the if a load is too much for a donkey, there are two things you can do: lighten the load or strengthen the donkey. And, <laughs> and he said, you know, we may not be able to lighten the load of our lives, uh, but we can strengthen ourselves mm. so as to be able to make it seem lighter by, you know, yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been trying to lighten the load. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes that can be done too. I mean, people do a lot of stuff that they might find is um, not so useful if they, you know. Yeah, that's true, too, that, that there are ways of simplifying often that people don't see. And I think that in this quieting of heart, one of the other things that comes with it, one of the things I talk about in my book in the category of discernment, is you begin to see um, elegant solutions often that are much simpler and easier than the way you've been doing it, you know. Um, those, those make themselves apparent. Well, you know, it's like you were saying earlier, um, w with regard to the world situation and all the dire, you know, problems and, and challenges that we face, so much of that is symptomatic of a, of kind of a craving, um, you know, for, for more and more, which is gone awry, which is really un, kind of unnatural, which is never going to be fulfilled in the direction that people are pursuing it, um, you know, and perhaps ultimately the solution to all these problems is for enough people to fulfill that craving in a more inward natural kind of way you know to, f to find that inner fulfillment and then we'll you know all these other symptoms of the kind of the f crazy outer craving will just kind of crumble and disappear yeah i like that I yeah <laughs> yeah another thing i think that will happen is that um 
intelligence, you know, I, I don't know if that was one of your qualities of awakened awareness, but there's an innate intelligence in this silence. And uh, if the more and more that wakes up, the more we're going to see brilliant inventions and, you know, ways of accomplishing things in a much more um, sustainable. sustainable and a benign way. Yeah, yeah. I actually use the phrase in my book quite a bit interchangeably with awakened awareness. I sometimes call it awakened intelligence. Beautiful, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, there's there's not a sort of a a shortage of natural resources there's a shortage of intelligence you know and if we if we could really have an abundance of intelligence then i i personally i believe that we could have all sorts of it wouldn't be like we wouldn't go back to an agrarian society we'd have a kind of a complex technological society but it could be um, so harmless you know so so harmonious yes absolutely yes yeah i think i think what you're pointing to is uh, in the use of this word intelligence, because there is, we do see intelligence, um, but it's not wisdom intelligence. We see quite a bit of cleverness, you could say, on yeah, Earth. Yeah, you know, IQ kind of intelligence, yeah. Yeah, and people inventing all kinds of nefarious things, you know, um, that are that are just harming us, you know. Sure. And, um, but the wisdom intelligence is, is a bit in short supply. <laughs> yeah, I and, mean, let's... As you're saying... Yes, please, yes. Yeah, as you're saying, then that you know, um, there certainly I think exists a possibility, and your show is was a part of that whole movement, uh, whereby more um, more and more people will start to see that if we don't get this more together, and if we don't start to you know rechannel and direct the attention in more intelligent ways, we literally won't survive. And so that may be the, you know, the tipping point. It may be that enough people, and apparently, according to those who study these matters, that you only need like 10% for a tipping point. Mm -hmm. Possibly even less. Um, there are, you know, the, you know that hundredth, hundredth monkey example, and and there are examples, I, you know, such as in, in a laser, the square root of 1% of the photons, if they become in, coherent with one another, the rest of the photons join in, and the whole thing becomes as if a single photon. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. And in the heart, 1% of the cells are, are pacemaker cells. They regulate the beating of the other 99% of the cells. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. But I like what you say about wisdom intelligence. Um, you know, fracking is very clever. Genetic engineering yeah. is yeah. very clever. Yeah. You know, very sophisticated technologies. Mm -hmm. um, nuclear f fission is, mm -hmm. is very sophisticated and clever. It took a lot of brains to come up with the atomic bomb. That's right. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but you know, it, it, it's sort of a intelligence up here it lacks the the wisdom foundation and you know i think that when that foundation is sufficiently enlivened I, i'm maybe this is wishful thinking but i think it may actually work this way then these more superficial expressions of smart intelligence will kind of align with the wisdom intelligence and then we can still have very sophisticated technologies and stuff but they they'll kind of be in alignment with wisdom not not good. suicidal, you know. Right, exactly. That would certainly be good. That would be a good use of our of our cleverness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Personally, I think that's the way it's got to go. I mean, I don't see yeah. so I don't see solutions in any other yeah. way that, that I know. Can... I, I've um, I've been a part of a conversation for many, many, many years about you know, kind of 
looking at technology itself as one of the major problems, right? That we keep, we, we keep hoping that te technology will save us and instead it just deepens the problems. But the truth is, I mean, I've had to kind of come to see that you've got to ride the horse in the direction it's going. We're not going to go back to, you know, agrarian life, uh, you know, and give up computer. It's just not going to happen, I don't think. Uh, so we better work with what we've got. And I, I think, you know, there must be ways that we can figure this out and not rape our resources system and turn the earth into a smoking ruin with no fresh water. Um, you know, yeah. it seems like that could be possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the rudder of a ship is a fairly small thing, actually, know, compared, compared to the entire ship. Yeah, but you well, can just turn it a little bit. And yeah, you can turn it a little bit, and the, the ship doesn't turn instantly. You know, I mean, the Titanic couldn't miss the iceberg because they spotted it too late. <laughs> and maybe maybe we've spotted our iceberg too late. But, you know, if you turn it, soon enough, this huge thousands of tons ship goes in a completely different direction. Completely different direction, yes. Yeah. And so the rudder is this deeper dimension, this wisdom yes. intelligence. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And just, yeah. you know, inching it just a bit is, is going to make a difference in the course. So, yeah. Yeah. So we're getting somewhere here. <laughs> no, this is good. Um, I think it's 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 good for people to kind of acknowledge to know this to, to, to sort of think about this kind of point, you know, because I think spiritual people can kind of can forget that their spiritual life can actually make a difference in the world and like you say it can become narcissistic where it's all about me and my fulfillment and you know don't touch my deer skin and you know yes. <laughs> um, but um this spiritual activism thing i think the whole principle the whole kind of awareness of it is starting to wake up more and more yes i do too and and uh yeah happily so yeah it's 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 definitely the the focus, I would say, of my of my thoughts that I pay attention to is 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 a lot about what we're facing and what is going to be needed and the importance of really staying steady. Just as um, you know, I mean the, the the example that just came through is you know like a parent who maybe has a a very ill child. You know, um, you're on a twofold demand. One is to be taking care of the child as best you can and to be applying wisdom intelligence to the decisions. And the other is to be maintaining your own quiet and strength and love and clarity for that child. Um, and it's, it's, it's those, you know, riding those two horses in a sense, you know. Mm. And this phrase you just used, staying steady, um, you know, there, there are so many structures and institutions and systems in the world that really have no right to exist ultimately in any kind of sane and, and harmonious world, yeah. uh, but they're so entrenched. Yeah. And um, if the world is going to change, you know, if we are really turning this ocean liner in a better direction, then those things somehow or other are going to either collapse or be dismantled or crumble or, or something. Mm -hmm. And it, it could, there could be a lot of dust kicked up 
in the while that happens you know it, it could seem like all hell's breaking loose yeah no doubt and maybe it's already happening to some extent um, I think it is happening I, I think it is happening I think we're seeing a lot of shaking up of a lot of the systems you know um, and we will probably see a lot more in our the rest of our life uh, yeah and that could be frightening people for people if they don't have this perspective that ultimately something good is happening yeah, or also that, again, whatever, whatever is playing out, you know, because let's say, again, using the, the example of the, of the mother or the father or the parents of a very ill child who might be actually dying, you know, that it ends up the child dies. Um, it, the, the work is the same. The, the, inner, the inner life is the same. You, you still are maintaining this, you know, this love, this appreciation, this generosity, this caring, all the way to the last moments, you know. So what you're saying is that regardless of the outcome, whatever it's, it may be, the course of action is this, more or less the same. You just, you just have to do it. That's right. Whether, mm -hmm. whether it's going to work out or whether we are seeing... Uh, you know, the last phases of, of mammalian life on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as the Gita says, you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. Yes, Live not for the fruits of action, nor be attached to inaction. Yeah. Beautiful. Hmm. Yes. Love that. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, uh, is there anything we haven't covered? Have we figured out all the problems of the world? <laughs> <laughs> We, we covered quite a few of them. I don't know if we figured out any, but we, we surely uh, appreciated the, uh, the dilemmas. <laughs> yeah. Are there any um, kind of closing thoughts you'd like to leave us with? I was thinking, I was thinking yesterday, in fact, um, Leonard Cohen is a friend of mine, and um, he, he was in an interview somewhere. He said um, that, you know, as many years as he'd been kind of struggling with depression, there came a point in his life where happiness overcame him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I was thinking about that yesterday in the context of, you know, getting older and noticing that things just don't really stick. I mean, even the saddest things, like I said, one of my very best friends is very possibly dying. And, and it's a it, it's 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 very much in my heart. And I've already grieved a lot over it and had shed a, quite a few tears, you know, and I expect there will be more. And yet. I have happiness keeps overcoming me, <laughs> you know, that I would say to be kind of happiness prone as soon as possible, you know, just to let your light blaze through, appreciate this day, this moment, your cup of tea, uh, your walk around the block, whatever, you're patting your dog, um, every single bit of it. Let it let let that fill your well, so that you can be ready and 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 a a gift in this world. Mm. And if you don't know how to do that, investigate because there are ways. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yes. I mean, don't feel like it could never happen to me. You know, be a little proactive. There are sure. ways. There are ways of of bumping it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Find your way. Find your ways through to joy. And not, yeah. and not see that as some selfish activity, but as part of this whole picture that we're talking about, that, you know, it is for the good, the greater good, that you stay in your strength and in your joy. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Great place to end it. 
let me make a few concluding remarks. Uh, first of all, thank you very much, Catherine. I knew I'd enjoy this interview, and I, I very much did. You're a wonderful person to talk to. And you. Thanks. Those who are listening or watching, um, you've been listening to or watching an interview in an ongoing series. I think Catherine is in the 190s range in terms of the numbers of ones that I've done. I intend to continue doing them for the foreseeable future. So um, if you'd like to be notified of new interviews as they're posted, just go to batgap.com and there's a little place where you can put your email address and you'll get an email once a week or so whenever I post a new one. You can also subscribe to an audio podcast, which many people do. There's a discussion group there, which I mentioned earlier, if you feel like getting into that melee. <laughs> <laughs> you can get a little crazy at times, but that's the way the internet works. There's a donate button, which I rely upon people clicking occasionally if they feel the, uh, the motivation and have the means. I'll be linking, of course, to Catherine's website. You can get in touch with her through that link next week, which for me is in a few minutes because I'm going to do two today, is an, a very interesting guy named Anadi, who I became aware of just a couple weeks ago, with apologies to those who've been waiting for years to get on this show. I just had to interview him right away because I was so excited by what he was saying. So that will be the next interview. Thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you then.